Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you that the new book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, is going to be available this Hanukkah. It's been very, very widely received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, people who work with young couples, and the response has been really, truly amazing. Please look for it at the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, or your local Jewish bookstore. The Medrash tells us that Rabbi Shimon made a statement. He said, in my entire life, I never saw a human being who treated his parents with a type of honor that I treat my parents. This was his mitzvah. He steigged in it, and he reached tremendous levels. He said, there was no human being I met who reached my level of Kibbutz aim. But then I saw Esav reached an even greater level of Kibbutz aim. But I want to put this into perspective so we understand what's going on here. Oftentimes, great tzaddikim had a mitzvah. Rav Scheinberg used to wear many, many pairs of tzitzits. Some people take on different mitzvahs. Apparently, <clears throat> Shimon Gamliel was worked on this mitzvah. Kibbutz aim, treating his parents with respect, with honor, was his mitzvah. In fact, if you look in the Mepharshim, they explain that he studied all of the Chazals. If you look at all the stories, you look in the Gemara and Kedushan, story after story, and one Tana, when his mother was walking and she ripped her her sandal, he put his hand under her foot so that her foot shouldn't have to touch the hot sidewalk. Another Tana used to get down on his all four knees so his mother could climb on his back into bed. The tremendous, tremendous Kibbet Av, and if you read the stories, it's phenomenal and fantastic. Says Rameshim Galil, I studied all of them. I reviewed them, I studied them, and I far excelled, way, way above any of them. He was not bragging, a very humble man, but he recognized he worked hard on this, and this was his mitzvah. And then he said, I discovered that Esav towered over me. And the Medrash says, not only did he tower over me, I wasn't one hundredth of what Esav was in Kibbutz Avaim. And then Rabbi Galil goes on to explain, when I would serve my father, I would put on my service clothing. I wanted to make it clear I was a waiter. I wanted to make it clear that I was there for the benefit of my father. I put on my worst clothing. Once I was finished, I would leave and put on my other clothing, and I'd go out into the marketplace, into the world. Ace of the opposite. Whatever he'd wear, he'd wear. He had special begotten that he only wore in honor of his father. He's far outshone whatever I did. He was much, much greater than I. Now, you might be curious, how did Ramesham Galil discover that Esav was greater than he in Kibbutz Avaim? And the answer is, the Medrash tells us, because he was paying careful attention to Chumash. The Chumash tells us that when Yitzhak was getting on in age, his eyesight failed him, he realized that he might be close to dying, he calls in Esav, he says, I want to give you a bracha, go out, hunt, <coughs> find me an animal, bring it, prepare it, I'll eat, and then I'll give you the bracha. Esav leaves, and Rivka overheard this conversation, calls in Yaakov and says, quick, your brother's going to get the bracha. She had a nevuah that Yaakov was in fact supposed to get the, that bracha. <coughs> Quickly, I want you to go get Gidi Izim, get two goats, bring them in, I'll prepare them, and <coughs> I want you to go in and get the bracha from your father. Yaakov says, how could I do that? You know my brother's hairy, and I'm smooth-skinned, what if my father feels me and he'll see, um, it'll be like I'm mocking him, it'll, be the, it'll curse me. 
don't worry about it. And then the Pusik says that she prepared the izim, she prepared the meal, took the skin part, put it on his arms, back of his neck, and then took the big day chamudos, took the precious garments that were in her house, and put it on Yaakov. What were those precious garments? Rashi explains to us. Esav had one set of clothing. This set of clothing remained at his mother's house. You see, this set of clothing was unique and spectacular. When Hashem kicked Adam and Chava out of Gan Eden, Hashem made a very particular coat for Adam Rishon. That coat was taken by Noah onto the Teva. Nimrod became the owner of that coat, and Esav now had it. It was the most precious possession, explains Rashi. And why was it at his mother's house? He didn't trust his own wives. He had many wives, Esav. He didn't trust them. He kept it by Rivka. And this was the garment that he would wear when he went to serve his father. Rivka took this garment from the closet, gave it to Yaakov, said, go in there. And Yaakov went in, and he got the bracha. Now, that story alone is very interesting. But I want you to understand why Hermeshimagulia was so moved. You see, Esav didn't just like these begadim. They're called Big Day Chamudos. The Dazakanim explains what does Chamud mean? Chamud means coveted. How did Esav get these begadim? And the Dazakanim explains to us he saw Nimrod wearing these begadim. And Hashem made these begadim in a very unique way. All the animals of the wild were painted in the garment itself, but it was so realistic that when an animal saw it, it saw one of its kind. Nimrod would go into the woods, the animals would see one of its kind, would come over, and basically and they trapped themselves. He was a gibbert Said, he was able to hunt willingly, easily, because all the animals came as being attracted to the coat. When Esav saw that he was homemade, he coveted it, he killed Nimrod to take those begadim. He so much desired those clothing that he killed Nimrod, took those begadim, and those were the begadim he served his father in when Shimon Gamaliel read this, he said, Oh my goodness, that man so outshined who I was. I would wear my waiter's outfit. I would wear the worst clothing I had. But not Esav. Esav would wear his finery. He only wore it to serve his father because he reached that level of Kibbut Avaim. Says Shimon Gamaliel, I wasn't one hundredth of the Kibbut Avaim as was Esav. And this is a very interesting story. But I'd like to ask the obvious question on this story. And that is, who was this man called Esav? When Esav was 15, he comes home from the field, Ayef, tired. And he says to Yaakov, Haliteni namina doma, doma said, give me some of the red stuff. Rashi explains what was going on was that Avram Avinu had died, Yitzchak was in Avelis, and Yaakov had prepared food for the Ovel, Esav came back from the field after having killed Nimrod for those begadim. And that day, he walks in and says to Yaakov, give me some of that (coughs) red stuff. Yaakov Avinu at that point (coughs) gives it to him. And the Medrash tells us that that day, when he was 15 years old, he violated five major sins. He killed Nimrod, lived with a married woman, was Kofar Be'iker, Kofar and the mitzvahs, and he lived with the Naira Mursa. Oh, sorry, and he was Mavazar Bechorah, and he embarrassed the Bechorah. 
five cardinal Averas in one day. But I want you to appreciate who Esav was. Avram Avinu was supposed to live to 180. And Hashem saw that there was going to be a problem. Hashem promised Avram that he would die but save a tova. His grandson Esav was now 15. Esav turned the Tarbaz Ra. Until 15, you couldn't tell. But at 15 years of age, he turned to the dark side. And Hashem took Avram five years earlier at the age of 175 so that Avram should not have to suffer seeing his grandson go off the derach. Esav became a, such a Russia that not only was he over five Averas in that day, and that was who the man was, and Hashem had to take Avram Avinu five years earlier, so that Avram shouldn't have to suffer seeing this destruction of a human being, to see his grandson. Avram had to die by Sevatova, therefore Avram died at 175. So here's the question. Esav was kofar be'ikah, denied Hashem. Kofar be'tchiyas amesim, denied tchiyas amesim. There's no God, there's no Olam Haba. Why is he steiging in this mitzvah called Kibbutz There are no mitzvahs. He doesn't care about the Torah. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about the world to come. Yet Rabbi Shimon Gamliel says, I wasn't 100th. I didn't begin to reach anywhere near who Esav was in his mitzvah Kibbutz But for Esav, there were no mitzvahs. What did he care? Why did he care? He didn't put on tefillin, didn't put on tzitzit. Why was Esav so great in this mitzvah when everything else he was a zero in? And to understand the answer to this, I'd like to understand a little bit better a very fundamental concept in human dynamics. I want you to imagine the following. Imagine you come home, you're a fellow in the dorm, and you walk into your dorm, and you see on your bed wrapped a beautiful present. You open it up, and you see it's a brand new iPhone, the latest model. Oh my goodness, 1200 bucks. Oh my goodness. And you see a card, and it's from, from your roommates. And they say, hey, you're, you're such a great guy, we decided to get it for you. Oh my goodness, wow, that's astonishing. I, 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 I can't believe it. you got that. You'd be moved beyond description. I'd like to share with you that all of us have had such moments. I remember very vividly when I was nine years old, my birthday was coming, and I made it clear to my parents what I wanted. I wanted that James Bond attache case that actually released missiles. It shot a missile right up from the attache case. And that was what I wanted, and my parents got it for me. But the hard part was that my father was coming home from work and he wasn't going to give it to me until he came home. I searched every nook and cranny of that house. I looked here, I looked there, and I couldn't find it. Finally, my father came home, gave me the present, and I got my James Bond at the shake case. But do you understand that to a little kid, that was a lot bigger than the iPhone 12. To a little kid, that was exactly what I wanted, exactly what I needed, and all of us had those moments. All of us had birthdays, and all of us had gifts given, and all of us have been the recipient of a tremendous amount of good. If you take a baby and leave it in a room, provided you take care of its basic needs, you give it food, you give it shelter, the baby will learn to walk. It may be 12 months, 18 months, a baby will learn to walk on its own. That's how it's wired, that's how it's programmed. But if you take a baby and you leave it in a room, with a pile of books for a hundred years, the baby will not learn how to read. 
every one of us knows how to read because you and I had a mother and a father who sat with us on the floor and taught us Aleph, Bez, Gimel, Dalet, A, B, C, D. And if you think about what we received from our parents, it's astonishing. If you look on the UNICEF site, you'll see that there are 275 million children around the world who are illiterate. They cannot read. They don't learn how to read. They don't learn how to write. They don't learn how to add. There are millions of, hundreds of millions of children across the globe who are ignorant to an extent that's hard to believe. I remember an interesting story. We had a woman who was cleaning the house. She would come regularly. And I was, I used to sit, I was writing for a while, and I'd see, every day I'd be sitting here for hours at the computer, and she would see me, and after a while I felt a little funny. I felt like, what does she think I do all day? I play on a computer or whatever. Anyway, it happens to be that a Stop Surviving book came out in Spanish. It was translated into Spanish. And I got a copy, and when she came, I held up the copy. I said, look, I wrote this book. I wanted to show this what I do. I, I wrote this book. And uh, I got a blank stare. I said, no, the book, she was Spanish, and it was a Spanish book. I, 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 I wrote this book. I got a blank stare. I said, no, you see the book. See, I wrote it. I got a blank stare because she was illiterate. She couldn't read Spanish. That was her mother tongue, but she couldn't read. She was brought up in a country that, not like the America we live in. And when you think about the fact that we are the recipients of so much good, we know how to tie our shoes we know how to blow our nose. We know how to straighten our clothing. If you count the amount of benefits that you and I have, and there's only one source of that good, our parents. Our parents loved us and cared for us, took care of us, did everything for us, and anything that we are today is because our parents gave us, took care of us, helped us. And I want to make this very, very clear, because we live in America, and everything has to have a dollar tag attached to it. What does it cost to bring up a kid today? So, if you look on the uh, USDA site, if you look on the various financial planners site, you'll find that bringing up a child today in America, from age 0 to age 18, will cost at least $250,000. That means parents will spend at least $250,000 to bring up a child. But folks, that's not you and I. Because you cannot bring up a child in the from world for $250,000. No way, no how. Let's do the math really quickly. Yeshiva tuition. You're talking somewhere between fifteen dollars and $20,000 a year for 12 years. Somewhere between $180,000 and $240,000. Sleepaway camp or day camp, three to $5,000 for eight years. That's another thirty to forty thousand dollars. Bar mitzvah, bas mitzvah, you got ten grand over there. Clothing, food, out the window. Seminary or yeshiva. By the way, college or yeshiva, depending on which one you're in, is going to be at least a hundred thousand dollars. What about a wedding? Another twenty-five grand. I do not believe that you can bring up a kid today for under a million dollars. And what that means is that you and I are the recipient of that good. Even if I'm a little older, so in my day, the numbers weren't as inflated. But in today's numbers, you and I are the beneficiaries of at least a million dollars worth of good. But that is really, really inconsequential. Because what your parents gave to you 
is leagues and leagues above dollars. The love, the care. If you're a wholesome human being, if you're normal, if you have social skills, if you have a reasonably put-together personality, if you can function in society, there's only one reason. Because you had parents. Because if you're not sure that I'm right, just watch what happens to a kid who goes through the foster care system. From this house to that house, that house to that house, and they're not wholesome, intact human beings. Very damaged, very stilted, and for the rest of their life, they're not fully functional, happy people. The fact is that we were given love, attention, tremendous amount of care, and here's the point. What did our parents ask for in return? What is it they, they demanded from us? What did they ask for? For all of the good, forget the million dollars, forget the care, the attention, all of the love, all of the devotion, what did they want back from us? One thing. For me to flourish. My parents were focused on one thing. For me to be a mensch, for me to be successful. What's in it for me? How will I succeed? Do you understand that this is the most lopsided relationship in existence where the parent does everything for the child? And naturally, you would assume that the child recognizes it. The Sefer Chinuch explains that the mitzvah of Kibbut Av is completely humanistic. It's instinctive, it's natural. He says that it's proper, it's ro'i for a man to want to pay back the good for someone who did good to him. Number one, he explains, I'm in this world because of my parents. Simply the fact that I'm alive, simply the fact that I'm here, that alone is reason for me to have to treat my parents with tremendous honor. If they abandoned me at birth, if they left me on a doorstep, the fact that I'm in existence is because of them, and for that reason and that reason alone, says the Sefer Chinuch, I owe them a debt of gratitude that's inexpressible. But clearly there's a lot more. The amount of dedication and time and goodness and kindness and the amount of benefit that I receive from my parents is incalculable. Everything that I am is because of my parents. Explain the Sefer Chinuch, you don't really need a mitzvah, you don't need a commandment. The human heart should naturally, instinctively want to do whatever it can to pay back but a small fraction of the good that has been bestowed upon it. And I believe that that is the answer to Esav. Esav had a neshama that could have been on the level of Yaakov. Esav turned south, but he had a great neshama, a very, very mighty, lofty neshama. He turned to the dark side and became a major Russia, but nevertheless, he had a pure neshama. And he recognized the tremendous outpouring of love and kindliness that he received from his parents. He recognized and understood that over and over and over his parents gave to him and took care of him and loved him and did everything for him. And even though he was a Russia, a murderer, a man who stole women's, like there was nothing, stole men's wives, a man who would do anything, who would kill a man for a coat, nevertheless to his parents, there was a sense of appreciation, a sense of what could I ever do to pay you back? How could I ever begin to repay you? To the extent that when Shimon Gamliel saw this, he said, I, don't, I can't begin to touch his toenails. His most precious garment he saved to serve his father because that was what he wanted to do to honor his father. Not for the world to come. Not because of a mitzvah. Not because of God. But because there's an inner sense of 
How could I not pay back? How can I not do something for someone who's done so much for me? And you would think that Hakara Satov, appreciation, and certainly Kibbut Av would be instinctive, would be natural, and you would think that we wouldn't need a mitzvah. Yet, I believe it might be true that Esav didn't need a mitzvah, but I don't believe it's true in our day and age. Um, I don't believe I've ever seen the abuse, the disgrace, the put-downs, and the downright insults that I've seen good kids give to their parents. And a little bit, the question is, you got to ask, why? Okay, <laughs> I get it. We live in the land of disrespect. The culture touts it. I got that. But how could you not appreciate that which your parents do for you? How is it not instinctual? How is it not natural? And I'd like to share with you there are two reasons why. When I was a high school Rebbe, I would often talk to the guys at length about what they owe their parents. Whose bed do you sleep in? Who pays your tuition? Who taught you how to read? Who taught you how to tie your shoes? I would go on and on. One time, I was going on for about 45 minutes, and then we took a break, and one of the guys came over and said, Rebbe, I get it, I get it, I get it. But listen, my parents did all these things for me. It's true. But that's their job. Once they decided to have me, they have to do that because that's what a parent has to do for a child. So why do I owe them anything? I wanted to grab this kid by the shirt collars. Fella, it might be true that your parents' job is to take care of you, but you are the recipient of that good. And they have their responsibility, and you have your responsibility. If you bring a child into the world, you're responsible to take care of that child. I got that. But you are that child, and you are the recipient of all that good. You are the beneficiary. And the problem is that it's hard to recognize how much we benefit. The Chavaz Lovavaz gives a mushal. He says, I want you to imagine two teenage kids. They're living in a mansion. It's a gorgeous mansion. And they have every luxury and everything there. One day, the two brothers are having a conversation. And one brother turns to his other brother and says, You know, our father's amazing. What he does for us, these tutors and his extracurricular activities... And all that he does, it's just astonishing. The other brother says, well, I don't know about the old man. I think, you know, he's getting up early stuff and has run five miles a day. and all. This. I think he's doing it for his own honor. He's living through us. What's the difference between brother one and brother two? Brother one was adopted. Brother one lived on the streets until he was ten years of age. And when the man took him into his house... Everything that he received was a gift. He now had a bed, he now had food, and he had an unbridled sense of appreciation. Brother number two was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. From the cradle, he was brought up with luxuries and pampered, and because of that, he never learned to appreciate it. And one of the difficulties is, when you have it so good, it's natural to just expect it, and there's a sense of entitlement. Of course it's coming to me, of course it should be there, I'd be the first one to thank God if I had anything, if God did anything for me. But what have I got? I got nothing. And it requires some introspection and requires some taking stock to realize the extraordinary wealth that we have. And on so many levels, the first one being how much I have received directly from my parents. 
how much I enjoy, how much I benefited from them, how much I owe them. And after a while, if you really work on this, you reach an interesting state. You see the words hakaras hatov have a very real definition. Hakara means recognition. And tov is good. You see, the Torah doesn't obligate us to be grateful. That's natural. The Torah obligates us to appreciate, to recognize the good. Because if you don't work on a karas atov, you don't realize you have anything. You might as well not have it. You might as well be poor as a church mouse because there's nothing that you got. And if you don't learn to appreciate it, you really are poor. And one of the great secrets of living a successful life is to take stock, to take inventory, to realize how much I have, to appreciate it. And naturally, once I appreciate it, of course I'm grateful. Of course I, I owe my parents and I owe Hashem. And I, I, the problem we have isn't that we're not grateful. <clears throat> the problem is we don't appreciate it, we don't see it. I expect it, I'm entitled to it. I'm like that rich kid who's brought up with a silver spoon in his mouth. It's always going to be there, I'm always going to have it. I've always had it. And it doesn't mean a thing to me. And when you get to that state, you really are very, very poor. Because you have nothing. You have no luxuries, no possessions that are worth anything. Yeah, I got this and that, but that's just expected. And being entitled is a tremendous klala. And there's probably no generation that's been as cursed with that klala as our own. Everyone is entitled to everything. I'm entitled to every imaginable luxury Above that, maybe I'll have someone to thank. But until I get to my yacht, <clears throat> my few villas in Spain, <clears throat> France, and Japan, until we get to that level, I don't have much. So there's nothing that I have to be appreciative of. And again, <clears throat> this problem called being entitled is something that requires work. And the first place you see it is vis-a-vis your parents, whether there's a tremendous sense of what could I do to pay them back? And <clears throat> what could I do? Again, Asav was the master in Kibbutz, not for the mitzvah. He was a master of Kibbutz because look what my parents have done for me. How could I not pay him back? And the first reason why it's difficult for us to work on Kibbutz is because we have the sense of entitlement. We're rich and we're that spoiled brat and we don't appreciate it. But there's a second reason why. There's a interesting list I just heard recently of the things you need in life. What do you need in life? What you need in life is food, clothing, a place to sleep, and someone to blame. Once you have those, you've got everything. Once you have food, clothing, a place to sleep, and someone to blame, you got it. You've got everything you need. And while that is facetious, I'd like to share with you, that seems to be the mantra of modern day. I am a victim. We're all victims. I'm a victim of abusive parents. I'm a victim... And by the way, I deal with many, many people. And I've... It's almost comical. When I deal with the parents and I deal with the kids, and I know both, and I know the relationship, and the parents come in complaining about the kids, and the kids come in complaining about the parents... And when the kid says to me, my abusive father, and I'm saying to myself, nar do bist. Do you know what the word abuse means? Do you have a clue to what it means? But we're all trained in psychobabble. Any emotional problem that I have, any sort of bump in the road, it's my parents' fault. They blew it. They messed up. They, they ruined me. 
and this ability to place blame, there's going to be someone to blame, it's not going to be me, I'm the victim, and suddenly I'm absolved, listen, I am what I am because I'm a victim of my circumstances. So, I'd like to share with you the psychobabble which started in the 80s, became more prevalent in the 90s, and now has hit its peak in our current days, is exactly that. It's psychobabble, it's nonsense, and it's very, very sad. And because you're either a victim or a victor, but you see the choice is yours. We all have stuff. We all have gone through things. And I want to share with you something very, very important to realize. Let's even say you could legitimately point out how your parents were not the best parents in the world. They maybe were critical, or maybe they weren't so complimentary, or whatever it might be. I want you to understand something very, very important. Your parents did the best that they could. All they were concerned with was you. Even if you're legitimately right that they messed up, which I highly doubt, but even if you're right... You have to recognize that those people did the best that they could for you. All they were concerned with was you. All they wanted to benefit was you. And if you tell me they were too abusive, meaning to say they weren't shining with smiles all day, every day, it's because they felt you needed that, that it would help you. And even if you're right that it was damaging, which again is definitely questionable, even if you're right, they did it for your good. And it's but a minuscule, micro, small, small sliver of everything else that they did for you. Let's say they scratched you, but they also gave you a house to live in, they gave you food, they gave you nourishment, they gave you care, they gave you love. And it's true that a couple of times, maybe they're too harsh. Maybe they weren't as gentle as they should have been. And therefore what? Therefore what? Because I'm a victim Therefore, it absolves every responsibility of appreciation to my parents. I owe them nothing because my father was critical. My father didn't compliment me enough. So first of all, I'd like to let you in a little secret. There are no perfect human beings born yet. Moshe Rabbeinu came pretty close. <clears throat> Yaakov Avinu maybe. But other than that, all us human beings are flawed. And just wait. And <clears throat> just wait till you're the parent and your kids pull the same thing on you. Because I don't care how good a parent you are, you're going to find something very, very interesting. It's very, very easy to blame your problems on someone else. Very, very difficult to take responsibility for your problems. But more than anything, we human beings are all just okay. We have shortcomings, we have flaws. But knowing that your parents did the best that they could for you, they legitimately tried their best, even if you're right and that there were some things that they didn't do perfectly, the unbridled sense of appreciation, the unbridled sense of what could I ever do to pay them back, should it so far eclipse everything else, that you should be ace of and keep it off. But I'd like to share with you that this concept really doesn't just revolve and st- stop at keep it off. It's not just about parents. It's every relationship that we're engaged in. Let's deal with a relationship called marriage. Okay, I can't tell you how many times I've had guys say, she's just a fetch and she's noisy and she's, she doesn't do anything for me. Okay, I give guys a little exercise on a regular basis. I want you to take an index card. And on that index card, you write down the things that your wife do, does for you. Number one, 
on your feet are nice, freshly laundried socks. A week ago, they were smelly and dank. What happened to them? No elves suddenly took them, washed them, put them in your drawer. The fact that your wife cleans the house, cleans your food, prepares the food, takes care of all your needs. If you write down what your wife does for you, you'll have a laundry list, literally and figuratively, and that should fill up an entire page. And here's the problem. If you don't actually write down the list, you forget it. And you feel, what does she do for me? She doesn't do anything. What do I, I owe her? I appreciate What do I have to appreciate? And I cannot tell you how many times women have a, a major complaint. My husband does not appreciate the work I do for him. He doesn't appreciate the fact that I cook and I clean, I take care of the kids, and maybe even have a job. And I want you to know that if you don't train yourself and you don't actively write it down, you don't actually take a pen and write down things, you're not going to appreciate it, and you're going to be a kafoy tov. However, ladies, don't get so comfortable yet. I was once speaking to a woman who said to me these words, he does nothing for me. Nothing for me. I'm going to leave him. As soon as the kids are gone, grown, I'm out of here. I said, I hear him. Okay. I said to her, you know, you, you drive a rather nice car. And you live in a quite a nice home. Do you work? No, I see. Okay. Uh, and, and tell me, you have, I understand you have a bunch of kids, right? How many children do you have? Eight. I said, uh-huh, very nice. Um, and tell me, your children go to yeshiva, yeah? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, do you know what the tuition for their, your children costs? She didn't, so I helped her with the math. Uh, and between her children and her son-in-laws in Kolel, over $100,000 a year was going to their Torah education. I said to her, Madam, tell me, your husband, Mustama, had a very large inheritance from a, a dead father or grandfather, right? He said, no. Uh, he probably, uh, you know, he probably has a, works, you know, he takes off, plays golf three, four times a week, right? No, he works very hard. Uh, I'm sure he takes three-hour lunch. No, he's sweating there all day. He barely takes a lunch break. I say, uh-huh. <clears throat> Madam, listen to what you're saying. Your husband gets up early in the morning and barely eats at his desk, slaves away to earn a living so that you can live in his house, and you can drive these cars, your kids can be in your shoe, and you say the words, he does nothing for me? Now, don't get me wrong. There are many obligations that a husband has to his wife, including creating a bond and connection to a wife as well. And <clears throat> that being said, there's also an obligation on each spouse to recognize what they receive from their spouse. If a man works and brings home an income, and in that case a sizable income, and his wife doesn't appreciate it, she is making a mistake. She has to take down a pen and write down all of the things that she has, and recognize that her husband goes to work to provide for her, for her family, and that's his sign of love. Should he express it in other ways? Absolutely. Should he work on communication? 100%. Should they spend time together as a couple? No question about it. You read the 10 really dumb mistakes that really smart couples make. I spent a lot of time on that issue. Nevertheless, she is the recipient of tremendous amount of good. And both husband and wife have an obligation. The obligation is to recognize what their spouse does for them, how much they owe their spouse. And I was once giving a marriage transformation boot camp. I had about 50 couples, and these couples were really in, in a bad place. 
and I did it for about six weeks via Zoom, and it was a very, very um, interesting experience. The complaints, the fetching, the, the negativity was beyond description. And I decided I had enough. I asked a few older singles. I asked some older singles to please leave me a tape. Just describe in tape what it's like for you. The loneliness, the despondency, the being in the world alone. I want you to describe your situation because I want these couples to hear it. Because while all of us have complaints, my spouse, my spouse, my spouse, the fact that you have a husband, the fact that you have a wife, you are the recipient of a tremendous amount of good. If you don't count your blessings, you might as well not have them, and you act like you don't. But the simple reality is that you do. And the Stipe Lagone explains that one of the things that a husband and a wife each have to do is imagine if I didn't have a spouse, what would my life be like? I'd be empty, I'd be depressed, I'd be lonely. But it requires taking stock. But it's not just about parents, and it's not just about marriage. The bigger picture really has to do with our single most important relationship, and that is our relationship with our Creator. I'd be the first to thank Hashem if I had anything to thank Hashem for. I'd be the first one to sing out praise if I had anything. But my life stinks and I got nothing. So that's a problem. That's a real problem. And if you have that problem, I have a solution. I want you to go to an old age home. I want you to visit. And I want you to see an 85-year-old man on the walker where each step... Each step is a struggle. I want you to watch a woman with Parkinson's. And I want you to watch as she struggles to get the spoon to her mouth. I want you to watch a man who no longer has control of his bowel movements. I want you to watch a man who no longer has control of his speech. I want you to go there, and then you come back, and you open a sitter, and you see a string of 16 brachas. 16 brachas that we say every morning. Hashem, you have gifted me. You have gifted me with sight. You have gifted me with mobility. You allow me to stand erect. You allow me to have shoes and clothing and everything that I need. A string of 16 brachas. I heard my Rebbe, the Rishiv Zatzal, say it should be said with an outpouring of emotion. It should be a musaseder. But the problem is, if you don't take stock, if you don't work on it, you don't appreciate it, and you might as well not have it. But if you don't appreciate that you have sight, you're the same as a blind man, because you don't appreciate it. And what it means is, it's Kedai. You go to Eretz and you go to the, museum, to the Museum for the Blind, or maybe you put on a pair of dark glasses, and you ask yourself, what's it like not to have sight? And then recognize, oh my goodness, Pokeach Ivrim. Hashem, you've gifted me. You've given me this gift. Thank you, Hashem. What could I ever do? I have ears with which to listen. And I hear such clarity. And I hear music. And I hear tones. And I have hands with which to feel. Legs with which to walk. I have all of my senses. 
I have a sense of taste and a sense of smell, and I have food that comes in so many different flavors and textures and aromas. I am blessed with so much. But you have to actually stop. You have to actually take stock, and you have to actually recognize what you are the recipient of. You see, after that string of 16 brachas, and then we say, Baruch She'ama V'haya Olam. I recognize, Hashem, that you said the words and created the world. And all that exists was created with your words alone. And then you pay attention to the words of Psukit Zimra, and you see the words of praise that David HaMelech sang out in honor and appreciation of Hashem. And you see the wealth that he enjoyed. But the wealth was because he lived in a world of riches. He lived in a world of incredible luxuries and pleasures because he trained himself. And when you say the Hallelujahs, you're supposed to be wanting to sing out with tremendous glory for the honor of Hashem. What could I ever do to repay you for everything that you've done for me? There's supposed to be a sense of overwhelming abundance of richness of just Hashem. What could I ever do? But again, if you don't work on it, it don't go nowhere. I think this Chazal is a tremendous, tremendous lesson. As great as Rabbi Shimon Gamliel was in Kibbutz and he was great, he considered himself not one hundredth of Esav. Even though Esav didn't believe in God, didn't believe in the world to come, didn't care about mitzvahs, but Esav was the recipient of so much good. As the Sefer Chinuch explains, it's a humanistic mitzvah. It doesn't require a tzivoy, a person should have a sense of what could I do to repay my parents. But unlike that kid in my high school class who said, that's their job, you have to train yourself to appreciate the fact that you read, the fact that you know how to tie your shoes, the fact that you know which colors match with which colors is for one reason, because your parents loved you and cared for you. If you need to put a price tag, it's a million dollars, but it's way, way, way more than that. It's the care, the attention, Everything that they could do for you, they did for you. You have to remember to stop blaming other people. You have to remember that there's unending appreciation that I owe my parents. If you stop the entitlement and stop the victimhood, you begin to appreciate it. And and before I really sum up, I want to share one last very, very important observation. And that is... Yaakov became the ultimate tzaddik. Yaakov Avinu became the greatest of the Avos, and he became the pillar of the Jewish nation. Esav, mm-mm, headed very, very, very down. Did he do tshuva in the end? I don't know, but one thing for sure, he was off the derech big time. So here's my question. What was Rivka's and Yitzchak's mistake. They blew it. Obviously, they had a kid off the derech. They had a kid off the derech, so either they beat him, or they abused him, or they, uh, they didn't give him attention, or they, uh, they, they criticized him. They clearly did something wrong, because Asa went off the derech. You don't have a kid in Yitzchak and Rivka's home who goes off the derech unless you really blew it, unless the parents are responsible, unless they messed up. Interestingly, we're not told that Yaakov became a tzaddik because his father treated him well, and Asa became a Russia 
because uh, Yitzhak beat him. Matter of fact, if anything, Chazal say maybe Yitzhak took it too easy on Esav. But one thing for sure, two brothers in the identical circumstances, one became the ultimate tzaddik, one became a Russia. Do you know why? Not because the parents blew it. Not because the parents were critical. Not because the parents didn't compliment. Because there's a thing called free will. And Bechira means you interpret, you choose, you choose your path. And when you see two brothers who are brought up in the same home, and one says, my parents were abusive, and his other brother looks at him, what are you talking about, abusive? I lived at the same house. We ate at the same table. What are you talking about? So number one, and before you go blaming parents, take it slow. And number two, and don't assume... When you see a kid of the derech, everyone loves to say, it must be that the child was abused. It must be that the parents were guilty. It must be that there was some trauma that happened. It could be. In many cases, it's true. And I'd also like to share with you that a thing called free will, a thing called Bechira. You, you can become an ace of a rush, even though you have a lofty, mighty neshama, you can end up in the sewer because there's a thing called Bechira. And Hashem allows you to choose. Again, I think this Chazal shares with us an incredible concept. And that concept is that my heart should demand of me, what could I do to pay back the good? That's what Meshim Gamaliel said, I didn't begin to reach a fraction of what Esav was. I would serve my father wearing my waiter's outfit. He wore his big day chamudas, the clothing that he killed Nimrod for, he used only to treat his father with honor. He used it to serve his father. And that came from one source, a pure neshama recognizing what he received. And I want to close with one last thought. I heard my Rebbe, the Rishiv ask a very penetrating question on this Chazal. Okay, Rishiv Gamliel used to wear waiter's clothing. He thought that was the best way to treat his father. I'm in your service. And then he realizes that Esav did the opposite. He wore his best clothing. And he says, oh my goodness, I wasn't 100th of Esav. Esav wore his best clothing to serve his father. Okay. Why didn't Rimshim Gamaliel say, okay, from that point on, I started wearing my best clothes. Why didn't he put it on his big day Shabbos from that point on to serve his father? He saw Esav did it. Why didn't he learn from it? And why didn't he do it from that point on? And I heard my Rebbe Dershavitzel say something tremendously insightful. Rimshim Gamaliel realized if he'd wear his Shabbos clothing when he served his father, some soup might spill on it, and he might get angry. And the chance of that happening was too great for him to take a chance that might be the biggest dishonor to his father. Even though Rabbi was a very worked out person. But there might be some sense of, I ruined the clothing, I stained it. I, 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 he didn't want to take a chance because he could be upset at his father if he cleaned it, if he got dirty when serving him. Okay, said the Rishim why wasn't Esav afraid of that? Do you know why? Because Esav had such reverence, such respect, such love for his father, that if his big day chamudas, his most precious garments got stained, he wouldn't have reacted. It wouldn't matter. He wouldn't have uttered a mouth. And that's what Rameshim Galil understood. He couldn't risk wearing his fine clothing because he might get upset. Esav didn't have a fear. There was such respect such love, such reverence, he wouldn't dare utter a word if his most precious garment got stained. It didn't matter. You see, he was real. 
he had that sense not because of a mitzvah and not because of Hashem, but because what could I ever do to repay my father for what he's done for me? And I think that is a tremendous lesson of appreciation, a tremendous lesson of what's humanistic, what's proper, and it's something to understand that if we work on it, take stock, it's something that we could live a life of richness, a life of appreciation, a life as Hashem wants us to. And now, I'll open the floor to questions. I again spoke a little bit longer than I wish to have, but I think it's a very important topic, so I hope there were some important points discussed. Please feel free to raise your hand if you have a question, or you could type them in if you're, if you're not comfortable raising your hand. But if you raise your hand, I'll call and you can ask. Before I forget, um, two things. Number one, if you're not yet receiving the, um, if you're not yet receiving the WhatsApp chizik, we have the <coughs> Shmooz WhatsApp chizik group. Three, four times a week, we send out these short inspirational videos, They're about two minutes long. They come directly to your phone. If you would like to receive them. If you go to the schmooze.com, you'll see on the banner the Schmooze WhatsApp Chizuk group. You'll also get um, replays of all the, uh, for instance, tonight, the replay of tonight is going to be put on the Schmooze WhatsApp group. The replay of the Wednesday night, we, we now have the Wednesday night, uh, the Derech Hashem Shir that I give to the women here in Muncie, and it's it's televised, it's through Torah Anytime, it's live streamed, and we record it. It's also put on the WhatsApp group. So if you want any of the Schmooze information, either the replays, or these short videos, if you go to the schmooze.com and you click on the banner, you'll be you'll be able to join the what's the schmooze WhatsApp Chizuk group. And again, you'll get the short inspirational videos, and you get the replays right away uh, to your phone. It's it's a good way to stay connected. I also want to mention while I'm waiting for people to get brave and raise their hands for questions, I also want to mention the Mitzvah Shem, Hanukkah time, and the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make is going to be in the stores. It'll also be on the schmooze.com. We sent out, right now, we've sent out um, almost a thousand pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, to chassan and college teachers, and I've received rave reviews. Chazdeh Hashem, the amount of thank yous. We needed this book years ago. It's great, fantastic. So I'm very, very optimistic. Um, you know, in Mitzvah Hashem, it'll be in the stores, Hanukkah time, or on the shoes.com. So you look for it, the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. And now, if you have questions, thoughts, observations, please feel free to raise your hand. If you're shy, you could type it in. Um, <clears throat> let me see. Um, okay. <clears throat> okay, please feel free to raise your hands. Um, okay. okay, I'm going to read a question here that, that someone typed in. I love my parents. I'm very grateful for everything they have given me. I'm having a hard time forgiving my father for childhood being publicly screamed at in public, endless amounts of times at the Shabbos table and the like. Any advice? Okay, so first of all, I hear. Now, let me make one, let's start with one observation. Number one, why did your father do it? I'm going to assume that your father's not nasty, not mean. I'm going to assume he did it because he was disciplining you, he thought it was for your benefit, it was for your good. Now, you may not have felt very happy about it, and you may not feel very good about it now either, but it's very important to understand that I doubt your father was vindictive or vicious or malicious. I have a feeling, much more likely, it came from a very good place, misguided maybe, but from a very good place. And what that means is you have to recognize one simple yesod. Your father was doing the best that he could do, given the circumstances that he was under. 
Are we all perfect parents? Uh, you ask my kids, they'll tell you, I sure ain't. <clears throat> the perfect parent has not yet been born, and I knew a very, very learned, very wise child psychiatrist who used to say to me, if you get it right 51% of the time, that's pretty good. So <clears throat> I don't doubt that your father did things that were inappropriate. Number one, you have to remember and recognize that he was doing the best he could. He did it because of concern. He did it for love. Uh, <clears throat> number two, was that all he did? Every minute of your day, you were always yelled at and screamed at and abused and etc. All, all the time? I'm sure it happened. I'm sure it happened many times too many. <clears throat> but I'm sure there were also many positive events and many things that were very good and many times that he approved and many times he spent time with you and gave you things and did things with you, etc., etc., etc. And the problem is that we have a memory based on projection. We remember certain things in certain ways. Certain incidents loom large. He might have yelled at you, let's say, once a month only. But that looms very, very large. Or it might have been once a Shabbos. But that's all you remember. And you dwell on it, and you dwell on it. And one of the things you have to train yourself in is controlling your thoughts. You see, it's not fair. If your father was mostly kind and good, but occasionally yelled at you, and especially he did it for your good you have to recognize that it was just a small part of who he is, who he was, what he did for you. And the fact that you keep going back to it is for a very interesting reason. I wonder, and this I know factually, there are many times when, as I mentioned earlier, you could have two brothers, and they experience a vastly different reality. And one brother says, my parents are so abusive, I can't stand it. And the other brother says, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're referring to. And why is that? The why that is, is because we human beings have different natures. Some kids are hardy, some kids are sensitive. Some kids are very wholesome, some kids aren't. And I have a feeling that the words that your father said weren't that strong as much as your sensitive nature. And a sensitive nature means you hear things louder than maybe they're said. I have, Baruch Hashem, six kids. I have one kid who has ears of a bat. Ears of a bat. You say something on one end of the room, this child will hear it down the block. <clears throat> but some people have excellent hearing because their ears are very sensitive. Some people's personalities are very sensitive. Their hearts are very sensitive. <clears throat> and the simple reality is that if people are more sensitive, take things more to heart. It could be a lot of times it wasn't screaming that loudly. It could be that was your interpretation. It could be the, the way you heard it. And I'm not excusing the words or the expressions. That's another part of it. I'm explaining to you that it could well be that you heard it in exaggerated tones well beyond what it was, well beyond the way anyone else would have heard it. And that's unfortunate. It's sad. But it's hard to blame your father for that. So, number one, you have to remember how much good your father... Number one, you have to remember why your father did it. What he did was doing the best he could do for you at the time, and he meant it for your good. Number two, you have to remember that it was but one of many, 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 many things that he did. He had millions of interactions with your father. If you're going to find me five or ten or fifteen or even twenty that were negative, the rest of it, you slept in his house, you lived in his bed everything that you are, you are because of Him. One doesn't obviate the other. And you have to remember that selective memory means I remember just selective things and nothing else. 
But again, number three, you have to remember the fact that different people have different personalities. And it could be that a big part of the problem, and again, it's unfortunate, but if a kid has a more sensitive nature, they're going to hear things louder than they were said. And it could be that a big part of the problem was more your nature than the tone or the verbs or the words that your father used. So I think if you think about it from all three angles, I think hopefully you'll be able to hear this a little bit. All right, good. Um, I hope you'll join us next week, Yemitz Hashem, for the Derech Hashem Shir Wednesday night and the Shmooz Live Thursday night. If you have questions that you'd like to send in, please feel free to send in questions. Uh, <clears throat> feel free to send questions in. Uh, I'll take them anytime. I'm going to look now to see if I can take another question here. Um, <clears throat> Okay, I'm not going to deal with that question. Okay, all right, I wish you all a good shout. If you have any questions, please feel free to email them in uh, and uh, or raise your hand at a certain point. I thank you very much. I wish you a good Shabbos. Much, much atzlacha. Thank you.